You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Albuverde. Coming in hot. And Graham Hall. Jumping. Coming smooth. Jumping. And the bass gets jumping. Brought to you by the Gainesville Sun and Gatorsports.com. Welcome into the Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm Zach Albaverde, joined to my right by my co-host Graham Hall, and we are back from the 813, our trip to Tampa, and it was a successful one for the Gators as they bring back a 42-20 victory, and no shortage of quarterback conversation either, and Graham and I obviously will get into that today along with many other topics. Graham, happy Monday. How's it going? Great to be here, Zach. Florida clearly has a wealth at quarterback. And despite that privilege, it's led to a lot of debate and even a little bit of frustration, even as the Gators build a 32-point halftime lead. And we saw that once again on Saturday, and it's for good reason. Let's call it as it is. Anthony Richardson is dynamic. And not only is he dynamic, but he puts the pressure on Emory Jones to perform. And it looks like, so far through two games, it has been to Florida's benefit. Now, as we've talked about, it seems like for nine months, the Gators are going into their biggest game of the season, without a doubt, with now some questions at quarterback. But before we get to that, we got to talk about what we saw at Raymond James Stadium. I will say I think the biggest question at quarterback is the health of Anthony Richardson, which if you're listening to this podcast this was recorded pre-Dan Mullen on Monday. So if you're looking for an injury update on AR-15, go to Gatorsports.com and you will see that from Graham or myself. But if you're listening to this pod now, we're here to recap the game. And obviously we'll talk about the quarterbacks, but a lot that came from Saturday's matchup, right? You saw Florida Eclipse 300 yards once again on the ground. You saw their passing game come alive. And then on the defensive side of the ball, once again, some points given up at the end, and you know, not a, a great start early in the game with that long scoring drive that they allowed the Bulls to have. But from that point on, I mean, from the end of the first quarter all the way to the end of the fourth, they had a stretch there, Graham, where they went 0 for 9 on third down conversions. Uh, Florida's defense did. Uh, so they, they really kind of buckled down defensively, and it wasn't obviously until Emory Jones started throwing interceptions that the Bulls were able to find some success again offensively. And that's obviously what we'll kind of start the show with, and we'll get into a number of those, uh, and we'll kind of get into all those highlights throughout this episode. But the way the game started, Graham, in the first half with Emory Jones scoring two touchdowns, Anthony Richardson coming out and scoring two touchdowns, you felt like, hey, this two-quarterback rotation might work, and especially if Emory's going to perform the way like he did in the first half. And we can talk about bad Emory Jones, but good Emory Jones in the first half looked pretty good, and I think obviously that's what Dan Mullen's hoping for. I think that rotation of the two quarterbacks was exactly what Dan Mullen envisions yeah, this Rich- offense being. And Richardson coming in third and fifth series. And seeing him can stymie Emory Jones, allowing him to kind of take a breather here gives the defense a little bit of a lack of foresight about what they're going to see out of the Florida offense there at quarterback, which should give both guys a better chance, theoretically. And I I think you absolutely saw that there in the first half. It looked like what you would envision out of this offense. I don't think that Emory Jones is going to be a quarterback who really is going to 
ever in a game take more than 80% of the snaps, and that may be to his benefit, and you may have seen why there in the first half. Yeah, and obviously, I think that he handled coming out of the game and then going back into the game throughout the course of the first half, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just cooling off at halftime, it was just losing the rhythm that he had found and the confidence that he had gained, but he just had a disastrous third quarter. And as I wrote in Albaverde's answers, I think it kind of outweighed the good that he did in the first half. And that's kind of going to be the lingering feeling that he has from that game is how he performed in the second half, and specifically in the third quarter. Back-to-back drives where he threw an interception and then back-to-back drives where he had the turnover on downs. The latter was was started by Anthony Richardson, and he took them down the field all the way into the to you know goal line situation. He has to come out because of his helmet, and then Anthony, uh, excuse me, Emory Jones gets into the game and once again has a turnover on downs on a fourth and goal situation for the second straight week. And then right there when he was also in that goal line, I mean, just threw into quadruple coverage, quadruple, not triple. And I mean, I don't know what you chalk that up to. But, I mean, making those type of decisions and reads against defenses like USF and Florida Atlantic does not bode well with Alabama coming to town. That's a lot of the stuff that a lot of Florida fans and media and obviously Emory Jones' coaches were hoping, optimistic that that was some first-game jitters, that, you know, he made some mistakes. And not just for him, from him, the sideline as well, getting the wrong call. Yep. You would hope that that was just... Let's get that out of the way. It's the first week. It's Florida Atlantic. You know, let's move on. And maybe you can attribute it to a road game, the peculiars of the travel, whatever you want to call it. But regardless, the throw in a triple coverage in the back left of the end zone, the the four straight possessions where they had a turnover, where he was the quarterback, two turnover on downs and then two interceptions, Florida didn't score in the third quarter. And I thought, that there were some people, myself included, that would have really kind of came away feeling as if the game, as crazy as it sounds, was over after that first possession. If the Gators could have managed to come out there and just put another touchdown on the boards, make that thing 42-3, to but you saw the exact opposite. I was after the game when we were standing out there in the rain, giving some kudos to Jeff Scott and the Bulls, because as crazy as it sounds, they did you know, quote unquote, win the second half. And when you're a team like USF, when you are, you know, everyone's talking about, will they get shut out, ourselves included, you know, trashing you and you haven't seen any progress. You start the season the same way you ended last year. No points on the board. To win a half against a team like the Gators could be massive for that team's confidence. So I gave them a whole lot of credit for the adjustments they made because was Florida doing a whole lot different? No. So it gave them a chance to adjust and see what they could do with a coach that could absolutely take them and put them in a position to be successful against guys who they were told on the recruiting trail that they didn't, you know, compare to whatsoever. Guys, former five stars from their own state, often their own teammates, as we saw after the game. They were told that they had no chance, and then they go out there and win that second half by double digits. You know, it is an indictment, absolutely, of Florida's game plan there in the second half and Emory Jones's third quarter. But yeah, like I said, I gave some props to USF because we were trashing them. I, you know, you and I both kind of were 
disrespectfully in a sense wondering when that fluke touchdown whatever you want to call it would come and then you know they get a pick and then two rushing touchdowns and then all of a sudden there's a few concerns in the second half yeah I will say though they would not have outscored Florida in the second half had it not been for Anthony Richardson losing his helmet and then hurting his hamstring. I saw some Florida fans saying, oh, that's intentional, you know, the helmet thing especially. I mean, what a play that was when he rolled out. That To me, that was his best play of the day. We and absolutely I know agreed on that. That's crazy to think that an 80-yard touchdown wouldn't be, but uh, just amazing for, to see him kind of staying right there, knowing that he was about to get smacked in the face, and just with the flick of the wrist, deliver a beautiful ball to Copeland on a rope right along the sideline. It was... um. Really incredible to see what he did, not just in the first half, but in the second half. I mentioned he got the first and third series. His first series, he scored, obviously, with the touchdown pass to Jacob Copeland, unlike the season opener that he got. I mean, he got the third series in that game and made some plays, but did not score. They punted that possession. So I think it was good for him to go out third series and fifth series, scoring both of those, and then coming to the, the end of the third quarter, he gets into the game and provides that spark. And again, if his helmet doesn't come off, and then he doesn't get hurt. He probably plays additional drives in that fourth quarter and I think would have led the Gators on some more touchdown scores. So it was just, I mean, you you see him go out there and you're like waiting for him to not have a spectacular play at this point because the first two games, it's like every time he's touched the ball, he's done something amazing. And he's just, he's a special athlete. If anything that you can say about taking stuff with a grain of salt, we haven't seen him against SEC competition yet. So I think the the level is going to be raised once he goes up against some of these guys like Alabama and some of the other defenders that he's going to face on this SEC slate. But nonetheless, I mean, to be compared to Tim Tebow with some of the stats and, and numbers that he's putting up, I mean... Florida fans are enjoying this, and that's why they're demanding more of it. And we'll obviously talk about this through the week. We'll see how things play out with this injury. But we're going to jump to this first break. When we come back on the other side, we'll discuss some of our other takeaways from the Florida-USF game. We'll give our helmet stickers. And Graham and I will also discuss at the end of this episode the piece that came out from Ross Dellinger about the hiring of Dan Mullen and how it's gotten Florida to this point. We'll be right back after this break. This is Gainesville Sun Sports Editor Arnold Feliciano. Please support our coverage of University of Florida Athletics by subscribing to the Gainesville Sun or Gatorsports.com. It's easy. Just go to www.gainesville.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for your support. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Neyland, but I did interview Bear Bryant, and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here. And when we were finished with the game, as you knew, Graham, Mullen was going to get asked about the quarterback situation. Once again, said that 
Emory Jones as the starter. And I think obviously with, you know, the way that it's played out and certainly Richardson getting hurt, that that's, that wasn't going to change anything going into this week. But he did try to poke a little fun at the running back situation. It's like, hey, why aren't you guys asking who our starting running back is? Because it is sometimes a question mark going into every week. You don't know which one of those five guys is going to get the nod. It's been Malik Davis the first two weeks. But Damian Pierce was the guy that kind of led the way on Saturday. And he only got into the game on two series where he was getting carries, but produced with both of those. And I think that you look at the way that Greg Knox has been able to rotate all five of those guys. All five of them have been involved in the first two games. We'll see how that continues moving forward. But it's not like Bowman and Lingard are just getting in at the end. They've been checking into the game in the second quarter, in the third quarter, in both of these first two matchups. So they are being used in the rotation, and Florida's found a way to make it work early here in the season. And between those five guys and their two quarterbacks rushing the ball, the Gators are leading the nation right now in rushing. And you wrote about that on Gatorsports.com. It's up there if you want to read that story. I don't think anyone who was indicting Greg Knox for his, let's call him strikeouts, on the recruiting trail over the past couple years, and also Florida's lack of production in the run game. That's absolutely a huge factor, I think you have to note. We didn't really see that addressed so much in the offseason. I think a lot of the questions were about, would the defense improve? Would Emory Jones live up to Kyle Trask, what he did last season? I don't think anyone really was saying, well, are you actually going to see a run game that would be among one of the best in the conference now that you've added five stars via the transfer portal and back to years? I don't really think that was a pressing conversation in anyone's mind, but now you're sitting here after week two and the Gators lead the nation in rushing. And yeah, as we just mentioned, let's see what happens when they go against SEC competition. But the most notable thing is what you mentioned, Zach, the fact that they've used and implemented all five of those guys in the game plan is going to be massive for this team moving forward, not only on the field, but of course on the recruiting trail where they can absolutely look at guys and say, hey, you have a chance to come to a program year one, get here on campus, transfer in even, and if you can work your way into the rotation, we'll get you onto the field. And now you're seeing that be the case with Demarcus Bowman. You saw that last year with Lingard, two guys who are change of pace backs for the the senior leaders and Damian Pierce and Malik Davis. I did think going into that game that Obviously, Malik Davis would be the feature back, having a chance to play back home in Tampa for the first time in four years. And now Damian Pierce kind of has a similar opportunity, except he gets to go against the team that he was formerly committed to, the Crimson Tide, gets to show them a little bit of a taste of what they may be missing in their backfield now. So no surprise to me if he is the starting back come Saturday against Alabama wasn't a surprise to me that it was Davis these first two weeks, but I think a lot of people weren't expecting that the Gators would be averaging what they are on the ground game. Yeah, and obviously if you look at the way that their passing game kind of came alive against the Bulls, I don't think people were necessarily expecting that much against USF and through the air. I wasn't. I thought Florida would just go out there and pound the rock and not show too much, but you saw them kind of open it up. You saw... Anthony Richardson do the rocker step, some other uh, plays that he made in the passing game. And obviously, Emory Jones was able to hit some things, too. The great touchdown pass that he had to Xavier Henderson, who made a few other receptions in the game. He kind of got involved, and you saw him emerge along with Copeland after you know the first two games without 
Tony Pitts and Grimes. It had really been the Rick Wells show. Uh, now you guys saw some other guys step up, and they're going to need them in a big way, obviously. But I'm I'm interested to see offensively, Graham, just like what we see from this team against the Crimson Tide that they haven't shown yet. Like there's so many formations. There's so so many so much personnel that they have that they haven't utilized, or different ways that they can utilize them. So it'll be a, a lot to look forward to, and we'll certainly preview that once we get later into the week. But on the defensive side, I think the expectation going out was a shutout Saturday. It did not happen, but you saw them, I think, get some valuable playing time and experience from some of the younger guys. Rotate a ton of uh, guys in the secondary and especially at corner. I mean, Kyrie Elam basically didn't even play the second half. And you saw Avery Helm and Jason Marshall once again get a ton of reps, kind of competing for that spot opposite Elam. You saw them both make plays. You saw them both have some times where they got flagged for some penalties. And, and Mullen said, it's, hey, they're both kind of competing along with some other guys, Jadarius Perkins, who's really looks like kind of working a lot there at that star spot. Yeah, I'm really surprised by Perkins' play, there were some people that, coming out of what we heard from fall camp, were really expecting him not to contribute too much this season, that he had a little bit, kind of like DeWan Black, just more to learn in his adjustment from the JUCO level. But I think that we're seeing now, after two games, that that's not the case. We talked about last week, that corner two spot, when I was talking about Avery Helm, that that really is going to be a committee approach. And if anyone this season can separate themselves in a way that Jaden Hill had done prior to his injury, that I'd be pretty surprised. And Perkins may end up being that guy. For what Helm does give you from an athletic physicality standpoint, I do think there are some things technique-wise that he still is working on. Perkins just has another year necessarily of college play under his belt, even if it's at a lower level by some sense. I think that he may be the guy this season that you see more and more on the field. But one of the things I wrote about Sunday is just kind of the overall takeaway from the defense in my mind is that Dan Mullen and Todd Grantham are willing to sacrifice that shutout, which really doesn't do anything for them development-wise, ultimately. It, It doesn't... Let's be honest. If you had seen Zach Carter out there into the fourth quarter trying to sack these guys and you know get this lead to 50 plus I think there would be some criticism saying why isn't he resting for the Alabama game instead you have freshmen like Desmond Watson and Antoine Powell I mean there were so many guys in there and you know Powell's a guy we've talked about the wealth on the defensive line and that's something we're going to talk about here a little bit more but I think that they would absolutely love the trial by fire approach. Is Jason Marshall wowing people right now, blowing you away? I don't think anyone is really saying, hey, that's going to be our top corner someday based on what they've seen so far. But they are loving that he is able to get game experience in his first nine months on campus because of where those games are at, even if it means that he's going to get burnt for the Bulls' largest passing play of the day, which is what we saw on Saturday. So ultimately, if you're obsessing over a shutout over the fact that, hey, we got some true freshmen on the field, got a jump start on their development as they're going to be needed contributors in the future, I think you really are kind of missing the objective of what the Gators were going for in the fourth quarter. Absolutely. And I think, you know, looking at their front seven, this was a game where I thought that they 
at least in the first half, would be able to kind of rack up those sacks. But credit USF's offensive line didn't allow any sacks in week one, only allowed one against the Gators, and that was on that first series where Jeremiah Moon got in there and, and made that sack. But, I mean, they did a really good job kind of containing Florida's pass rush. There was another time where Moon was able to get back there and get pressure on the quarterback and forced him into the throw that Elam was able to pick off. And just an incredible interception by number five, second year in a row where he's gotten the first pick of the season for Florida secondary and really had to uh, do a bit of a juggling act to, to keep that ball. And then, you know, the next possession – Rashad Torrance comes up with an interception. If it had not been on the holding penalty on Marshall, that would have been two picks that they had on the day. So I think a lot that they got out of that game, you know, you also saw Torrance come up and make that great tackle in the backfield. That was his first career tackle for loss. Tyrone Hopper is another young guy that got a lot of reps in that game. He made a career high six tackles. And then Chris Bogle. I mean, you mentioned the depth that they have at that buck position he's another one of those guys but he really came up big and uh was getting a lot of tackles for loss so they're going to need him and a lot of those other guys to kind of have the games of their life against Alabama and when we come back from this uh last break we'll hand out some helmet stickers for guys that we felt like had the games of their lives on Saturday against USF and we will also discuss the uh, feature that dropped this week from Ross Dellinger about how the Gators were able to bring Dan Mullen to Gainesville. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here and it is time for us to hand out some helmet stickers as we will do each and every week following Saturday's game and I think you guys can expect guess who some of these names are going to be but uh, hey we still got to hand them out give the props where they're deserved Graham where are we starting offense defense I think we got to start offense okay okay so um, I'm going to venture out on a limb here Mm. and say that you're going to go with a weapon for your choice I mean that's one word to describe him I mean, Some are using hyperbole and going superhero, <laughs> the next Cam Newton. The Messiah. I mean, I love him. I mean, he's probably got a list running of, okay, I could put this on a shirt. I could hurdle over this. Speaking of shirts, I mean, you still got to name the cat, but I mean. It's out of the bag at this point. I think <laughs> they know who I'm talking about. I mean, it's Anthony Richardson, baby. AR-15, that apparel is like sick. First, you got him hopping over the the bull, and now you got him stiff-arming the elephant for week three. Maybe that's a, a sign of things to come this Saturday. They feel like Anthony's going to be all right. He's going to be able to stiff-arm an elephant. We'll have to see. You know, I made a joke with someone that uh, if the, he wasn't able to play, I would willingly donate my hammy <laughs> to him, and y'all could call me Graham, Grammy-less. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, really, I don't really care. I think he needs to play at some point. I think we'll find out pretty soon here whether or not he will be able to play. Although, if I'm Dan Mullen, knowing it's Alabama, I saw some conspiracy theories out there that said, you know, maybe Mullen wanted him to fake the injury, no. keep Saban guessing. All in all, I, I feel like we really won't have too much clarity by Monday night on what the situation's going to be because the best way that he can still be a weapon throughout the week is to think that he isn't going to play. But I will say, I mean, for this helmet sticker, like I I didn't think that he could come out and top his performance from week one, and he did. Oh, absolutely. 
yeah, that that's that's kind of what blew my mind. I thought that he would be a little bit of actually a setback in a sense. I didn't think he would produce as much because I thought they'd play Emery more. That's like, fair. That's, you know, that's certainly fair. I thought that they would maybe use him in the first half but not give him the fifth series as well as the third series. So my helmet sticker goes to Jacob Copeland. New career high for him with receptions and, and really, I think, found a new connection in the passing game with Anthony Richardson. Everybody was expecting him to be the go-to target for Emory Jones, and I'm sure he could be this year, and Emory's targeted him. But the way that Copeland and AR-15 hooked up on Saturday, I think that could be something that we'll see a lot of this season. And I think they're just scratching the surface of the potential that you can have with those two, just given how dynamic they are, how much of a threat that they are, uh, for defense in terms of where you can line them up. And, I mean, if you got Richardson in there running the ball like he's doing and then he's doing RPO stuff and he's doing rocker steps and you got Copeland throughout the course of the season now motioning into the backfield and he's going to start getting jet sweeps and, and what have you, it's just going to give defensive coordinators fits. And I think, I mean, as good as he was on Saturday and as open as he got, like, haven't even, like, be, begun to – scratch the surface of where they could get with the playbook and some of the stuff that they can do with him. So, but nonetheless, I mean, a big performance from him, a new career high once again, and uh, we saw some fireworks in the passing game. That's where my reasoning comes from as well for the helmet sticker. I thought the setbacks would come from, based on Dan Mullen's comments after the FAU game, he kind of like threw some water on the fire really and said that Richardson still has a long way to go when it comes to understanding some of the reads, understanding the offense. He said he could run the offense capably, but he still said that there were some things left to be desired. So I didn't think we'd really see as diverse of a skill set on Saturday as we really saw. I mean, that guy looks like he's a few throws away from being able to lead an offense every single week if he isn't able to do it already. And we have marveled, you and I, and we say this, I think, all the time now it's got to be weekly from having covered him at the high school level it is really put into perspective when you look at how much he looks like a grown man and then remember that he's younger than he really should be just turned 19 he was a 17 year old true freshman when he arrived on campus last year what he's doing already is incredible he is ahead of the curve and then you've factor in how dynamic he is I mean if he can absolutely improve on what we've already seen it's it's a scary thought for the opposition it's one that makes you salivate if you're a Florida fan yeah and another scary thought obviously for the opposition is Kyer Elam and he's going to get my helmet sticker on the defensive side of the ball just you know he's going to get avoided this year so he's not going to have many opportunities I think to make plays so when they throw his way he's got to make the most of it and he did on Saturday um just a remarkable play that he made, but also what it did for the Gators just in terms of being able to just kind of put their foot on the throat of USF and put that game out of reach in the first half because the Gators were really rolling offensively at that point, and he comes up on third and nine, mind you, that that interception came. So it's a third down takeaway. He makes that play, and then on the ensuing series, the Gators go right down the field and score once again on Emory Jones' 33-yard touchdown run, and that was their fifth consecutive touchdown drive. I mean, they had it humming, and 
Elam to be able to make that play. I mean, that's what you're looking for from your defense. And then, like I mentioned, they did it right again on that next series with Rashad Torrance. But I think Elam, he's really the guy that's leading that secondary. He's really one of the few veterans that they have along with Trey Dean. And for all the youth that's there at that other cornerback spot, I mean, he's the one that's having to set the example, help these guys in-game on the sideline. So it's not just what he's doing on the field and the type of plays that he's making. It's the whole impact that he has on that secondary. And uh, for them to be able to contend against the Crimson Tide and some of these other teams are going to see an SEC play, he's got to bring his A game, but he's got to also lead that group. And I think that so far it looks so good, and he gets a helmet sticker for that. I, I You know, it was huge to see those ball skills because even though there's so much that goes into playing defensive back, the fans, and I know they don't, ultimately determine your future but they're going to determine what they think your worth is a defensive back based on your ball skills and offense yeah. your interceptions your pbus and as we saw last year you may be a very capable defensive back but if you aren't able in gainesville to occasionally come up with a tremendous takeaway as we saw on saturday you're really i think not going to get the respect that you may deserve and even though Elam does everything right most of the time <laughs> those are the plays that we're gonna remember uh when his time in the orange and blue is done for my helmet sticker I gotta say I debated going Jeremiah Moon just because it's been such a great return yeah for the six-year guy some really unfortunate injury struggles the past couple of years and to the point where I think some people really forgot what he could do there were some People a couple years ago, analysts based on the seasons he was having, thought he could be a you know second or third round draft pick coming out. And now learning a new position, I, I know we wrote about some of that stuff after the game. What he had to do to kind of play that money linebacker position, move off the line a little bit here. Still seeing a guy with a whole lot of versatility. I know I just praised him, but I'm actually going with someone else. I'm going with Chris Bogle, not just for his game on Saturday, although he did have a career high six tackles, but he's another one of these names that we always forget about when we talk about Florida's wealth on the defensive line. I know you mentioned Antoine Powell earlier. We talk about Zachary Carter, Desmond Watson all the time, Brenton Cox, but Chris Bogle is a guy that really, let's be honest, would be starting at any other Power 5 program. And starring. And be incredible. I mean, when he gets to the quarterback, how he doesn't feel a little chip on his shoulder as if I should be doing this every dang play. Hmm. I I mean, I need that mindset. I need to bottle it and sell it because that's just amazing humility in a sense. If you ask me, I have no doubt this guy is going to play on Sundays in the very near future. Right now, I think you may see someone who is going to fill the gaps for this defensive line. And, you know, maybe this is a bold prediction right now to make coming off a week two, but I would not be surprised if he finished near the top two or three in production this season on Florida's defensive line. Even though there's names like I just mentioned, Moon, Cox, Carter, Powell, and that's before getting into the defensive tackles, Valentino, Newkirk, you name it. I think that Bogle is really going to show some people this season that they've been sleeping on him and that he really deserves a larger opportunity than he's been getting, and I have no doubt he's going to get it. Yeah, you mentioned Damian Pierce looking forward to this matchup. With Alabama, you know Chris Bogle is another one of those guys. And everyone is looking forward to this matchup in, with Alabama. And obviously, Dan Mullen has gotten Florida's program to the point that they can 
feel like they can be competitive in a game like this and have a chance to pull off the win. It would still be an upset, no doubt. But Florida's got a shot. I mean, they showed that they could compete with the Crimson Tide last year in Atlanta. And it's just amazing to think about how far the Florida football program has come since 2017. And Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated decided to write about that for this week's feature on SI.com, where he kind of looked back on the hiring process of Dan Mullen and how everything has played out since that four and seven season and how the Gators have turned things around and become one of the best offenses in college football and competitive once again in the SEC. And it's just crazy when you look at how things could have turned or or went in different directions and also how some of the other programs around the state are struggling. No doubt the embarrassing loss by Florida State to Jacksonville State and then Miami, I mean, just squeaking by App State. Both of those programs are still trying to recover from some of the struggling seasons that they've had recently, whereas Florida, with Dan Mullen being hired, was able to just kind of brush off that four-win season and turn things around right in year one. But if you haven't, I encourage everyone to go check it out. Great work by Ross uh, going and talking to Strickland, Mike Hill, Larry Veach, a lot of people that were involved in that hiring process. And a lot of the info in there, I think Florida fans that follow that coaching search probably remember. And there's some stuff that's, uh, you know, has already been covered, but there were some new things that came out of it. I, I think one of them being that the Gators not only went out once, but twice to meet with Chip Kelly. And then one of those times, they had done it flying commercials so that they couldn't be detected. Uh, but also just kind of Strickland's internal struggle that he felt and talked about in the story about taking away uh, the head coach from his alma mater in a, in a place that he felt indebted to. But just some great anecdotes and when news was supposed to break and stuff that Ross had in that story. And it's just it's it's a good time to look back on it, obviously, with the timing now leading into this big matchup with Bama. A lot of us were privy, I think, to Scott Strickland's internal struggle over bringing Dan Mullen here. And he had opened up saying that, you know, he had lost friends for life and he gives Ross these similar details. And probably the best part of that story, I won't ruin it, is why he didn't want the news to break uh, before it ultimately did (laughs) because of what Scott believes in and how much those relationships really meant to him and his family, of course, up there in Starkville. So a really good behind-the-scenes look. I know that we cover this coaching carousel sometimes just through this news-only lens and forget about the people behind and the struggles and the relationships that make these things often come to fruition. But this is a great story that reminds you what it's like to make those decisions, these multi-million dollar, sometimes 10-figure decisions. And it seems like Florida's search firm, according to this story, came to the conclusion on Scott Frost that we're seeing play out at Nebraska. Yeah. He's struggling, and they didn't feel like he was ready for the big-time job. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I got to tell you, man, that's probably my greatest takeaway of the story is how I think – unusual Florida search process was. Some may call it arrogant. Some may call it personal, relationship-based. But right now, when you fire a coach, often the athletic director and president don't want the heat of that decision. They don't want it tied to their legacy. So they'll hire a search firm 
to make a recommendation. And they'll often pay that search firm six, if not seven figures to tell them who is the best coach. So they really can have some backing for their decision if anyone says, well, you made this horrible decision. This was not the case here. This was all University of Florida people who already worked at the university. And so Scott had to go against people that he works with every single day. It wasn't like he was disagreeing with the firm that he paid with, paid for. You know, this was a very personal approach. And the fact that it worked out better than anyone else's, the ones that hired those massive search firms, is unbelievable in a sense here. And really, it's just a, you know amazing story here. And will it look different in retrospect? Only time will tell here. But right now, four years into it, it's incredible that it's turned out this way. Absolutely. And I think another good anecdote that came from the story, and I think something that should make Strickland rest easy and feel better about how everything played out is is what was written about Dan Mullen in his last year at Mississippi State and how in the story Ross puts that the expectation in Starkville that was that in 2017 it was going to be Mullen's final year with the team because he decided to not renew his contract. He hired Jimmy Sexton. He had been linked to several jobs. And obviously Tennessee came calling after Butch Jones' firing, and that wasn't the first time that Tennessee had pursued him. It mentions in the story that he had been approached by Miami and Michigan and Penn State and all of these jobs that had come across the table. So I think for Strickland, as as personally attached as he feels to the situation and now years removed from it, it looks like and seems like Mullen was going to leave Starkville no matter what. So his departure was inevitable and Scott just put it in motion. But I, if Scott had made the decision to just strictly not do it off of principle, damn, it wasn't like Dan Mullen would still be in Starkville right now. He was going to leave. So. And, and that's his bias, though, which is, I think, so important to the story. And I'm not saying that a story was missing anything, but I think part of the context is the fact that you have Scott Strickland, who was voted as the Learfield, whatever it is, number one athletic director in the country last year, who really kind of had veto power of the decision, hadn't hired a search firm. And that question that you just posed, no one has ever had to really worry about, hey, are the people of Mississippi State going to be all right if we hire this transcendental football coach to bring us back to a national championship the only reason they were worried about that zach is because they had an athletic director from there if they had hired a search firm and they had said to linda teeler and steve mclean hey your number one choice is dan mullen then it's a no-brainer decision if you also believe that Dan Mullen for the last nine years that he was in starkville wasn't actively looking at what else was out there then you probably were born and raised in Starkville. And that's not a shot at the people who live in Starkville because I'm sure it's a great place with faithful fans. And, you know, they had a great run there with Mullen and Strickland. But that's the coaching carousel. You're going to come for someone else, and someone else is going to come for you. And now Florida is coming for the Mighty Crimson Tide this weekend in Gainesville. Looking to pull off the upset, it is going to be a monumental matchup. We're going to have a ton of stories and content previewing this game, looking back on some of the other number one matchups that have taken place in Gainesville and just what certainly it's going to take for Florida to be able to pull off this upset and get the win. So it's been fun for the first two weeks, but Grammy gets real now. Oh, yeah. yeah, It's on. It's on. We're ready for it. We will be back with you guys later on this week 
on Friday to preview the SEC opener between the Gators and the Crimson Tide. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Applebaum. No one.